Amen. Yes, Lord, we do pray that um, our lives would really be a reflection of you. That when others look at us, wherever you have us, Lord, in our homes, in our workplace, at school, wherever it may be, Lord, that something of your beauty, something of about you, your glory will shine forth. And Father, that will bring glory and honor to you. We pray that we will be bright and shining lights in such a dark world in which we live. Again, we ask this for your sake. And Lord, we pray now that we will uh, be attentive to your word, that you will speak to us. This is the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that we would uh, have ears to hear and that the spirit, Lord, your spirit will speak to each one uh, wherever we might be at today in our relationship with you. And as a result, Lord, as Alan prayed, we will leave changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Been a while. I still knew my way here. And uh, good to see the green hills finally coming through Crow Canyon Road. Like you turning your Bibles to Psalm 50, I was thinking as Dean was saying that he's glad he's off tomorrow. I'm working. But it's double time and a half, so I'm not complaining. Actually, I'm glad I'm working. Psalm 50. like us to consider this uh, time that we have together today, what God's goals for us in 2006 are. I don't know if you had a message on that a couple weeks ago or you've given any thought. It used to be kind of a thing that people thought about New Year's resolutions. But for the Christian, if you gave any thought or if you're giving thought since we're only two weeks into this new year, what is God's desire for my life? I think there's a couple of things that come out in Psalm 50 that we can pinpoint and say, this is God's desire for us. This is what he wants. But first, let's just read together 15 verses from Psalm 50. Verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very temptuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, And everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. 
and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Psalm 50. I don't know how many of you have ever had to do jury duty, if you've had to serve in that capacity. Show of hands, how many have been in good number of you? I really never have been asked, and I would love to serve, but I'm not sure I'll be given the chance. I have a feeling that the public defender, if it was a criminal case, probably would want to excuse me in line of the work I do. But I would love the chance. It's an awesome privilege and responsibility in our country to do that. There's something pretty awesome about those words that you hear in a courtroom. All rise. Someone very important is walking into the courtroom. And you show him the respect that he or she is due, the judge. As you read in Psalm 50, the setting for this psalm is a courtroom. And the amazing thing, the Bible tells us, is that God himself is the judge. Verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord has spoken. In the Hebrew, those are three names for God. If you were to break that down, El, Elohim, and Jehovah. And these names emphasize his might, his majesty, and his mercy. And it's an interesting setting here in Psalm 50 because Israel is the defendant. And heaven and earth are the witnesses. Now, we shouldn't view Psalm 50 as this is just relevant for Israel and this is something that happened for them. Therefore, it isn't relevant to us. It very much is so. God is continuing to evaluate his saints in this world. Judgment begins, the Bible says, in the house of God. And God is evaluating. God is judging. I don't know how you feel when at your workplace, if it's required that you get an evaluation. Some people get one if you're new on probation. You're getting one every six months, in some cases every month or once a year. Depending on who the one is evaluating and how you've been performing, you're either feeling good about that evaluation or it's something you kind of fear. In this case, God is the one, a righteous judge, is evaluating. And he's evaluating Specifically here, Israel, also he's evaluating us as his saints, as his children. And it was just mentioned in the announcements, you're going to be hearing more about the judgment seat of Christ in the next couple of weeks, which is an evaluation of a believer's works, of their service for God, and how we've done in that. And as you read this uh, psalm, if you notice in verse 1, it says, He has summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He's heard, and then he is seen as he leaves his chamber in the temple in Zion. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. And then, interestingly enough, he subpoenas heaven and earth to stand by in the witness box while he tries the faithful group, this faithful group of the nation of Israel. And as we read in those first six verses, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. You see, if you have on your Bible, the right-hand side, this phrase, Selah. What's that mean? Pause. 
Stop. Listen. Think. God the judge. He's in our midst. And he has something that he's going to say. And it's something that we better listen to. Think of the authority. Think of the respect that's due. Think of the highest court. We think of the Supreme Court. We've been hearing a lot about that over the last couple of weeks with the appointees and so forth in the process. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to this courtroom because of who's on the throne. God himself. And in verses 7 to 15, we read it, and we're going to spend some time on this, that the charges are revealed. It's interesting in verse 7 and 8, Israel was offering up sacrifices to him. He says in verse 8, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. There were no short supply of giving sacrificial animals to God. They had, if you like, the technical details down to a T. They went through all the motions. But God wasn't pleased, or for that matter, in need of their offering. Somehow in verses 9 to 12, it implies and it suggested that they thought that God needed their sacrifices for food. Now, this was really a pagan idea. And it was a low concept of God. And it was absurd. God didn't need their sacrifices because he was hungry. The problem was, was that their heart was not in what they were outwardly doing. And this is something, if we're really honest about it, we can relate to this. Sometimes this is our problem. Our heart's not really into what we're doing. And in this case, God says, therefore, your deeds are hollow And you're really treating me lightly. You're not treating me with the respect and the authority that I, as the judge of all the earth, deserve. You know, it would be, for example, if a a husband who didn't really have a heart for his wife all year long. But then on one day of the year, because it's her birthday, he tries to make it up with her with a card and presents and flowers and chocolates. I'm sure that to that discerning wife, something would seem hollow about that because he hadn't shown that kind of love and affection and his heart wasn't for her those other 364 days. And to try and do something on one day really wouldn't cut it. Or like some incorrigible kid, some young child who really has been a pill to his father most of the year, but somehow on Father's Day wants to shower him with gifts and socks and ties and things of that nature. What was lacking for the Israelites was a personal relationship with Jehovah that was filled with love and respect for him. And it was half-hearted. God said, this is unsatisfactory. It would be as unsatisfactory to you and I if I had you over to this afternoon for dinner. And I said, you said, what's for dinner? And I said, i got a chicken for you. But the only problem was it was only half cooked. It would be like lukewarm water. You wouldn't want it. You'd spit it out. You say today, well, what is it that God wants from his people? What is it he wants? He wants our hearts. He doesn't want half-heartedness. He doesn't want us to go through the motions 
with our hearts not in it, with our hearts not for him, burning for him. What is it he wants? Well, it says in our text, says in the, look at verse 14. One thing he wants is to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We sing a chorus back at uh, Fairhaven. It's one that's quite old. It's taken out of Scripture. We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. God wants from us in 2006, and I trust this is an extension of what was taking place in our lives in 2005, is he wants genuine praise and thankfulness to be coming from our hearts, pouring from our lips, and in our actions. If you know anything about that word sacrifice, and I trust you do, you look like a rather educated group here today. Sacrifice is something that we put effort into. It costs us. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why do we sometimes find it so hard to be thankful? We're tempted to complain, aren't we? Even in opportunities, even in the fact of the light of the blessings that we enjoy as his people. And there are many, aren't there? There are thousands of blessings. But there's a tendency, there's something in us, in our sinful nature, that wants to complain. It's been said that if you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world today. If you have never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are ahead of 500 million people in the world. And if you can hold up your head with a smile on your face, and you are truly thankful, you are blessed because the majority of people can, but most do not. Would God find you today to be a thankful son, a thankful daughter? Stories told of a small boy who was playing in the waves along the seashore, and he was caught up by an undertow and dragged out into the sea. His screaming mother attracted the uh, lifeguard instantly, and he was rescued and returned to her waiting arms. She looked up to heaven and she said, oh, thank God, thank God. And then she took a second look at her son and in frustration said, where's your new hat? Where's your new hat that I bought you? There's someone, something in us that is like that at times. And yet you contrast that with a fellow named, and I'm sure some of you know this fellow, Horatio Gates Spafford. He lived 1828 to 1888, and he was a longtime believer. He'd been a wealthy businessman, but he lost his entire fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Shortly after, Spafford's wife, Anna, survived a shipwreck while crossing the ocean. And then she sent this telegram that said, Saved Alone. Spafford's only four daughters had been killed in that shipping accident. And while crossing the Atlantic back in 1873, near the location where his daughters were said to have drowned, he stared out over the waves and he wrote the lyrics to the hymn. It is well with my soul. Remember those lines. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. If someone isn't a believer today, 
It would be very difficult to say it is well in the face of despair. If we go by our feelings, if you and I go by our feelings and we're discouraged, humanly speaking, we can't say it is well. If we're seriously ill, humanly speaking, someone who doesn't know Christ might say you can never say it is well. However, isn't it amazing that the believer, the believer, the one born again, despite, or if you like, in spite of the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can say it is well because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5.18, Paul doesn't say to, that we should give thanks for everything, but he says in everything, in everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When you and I get caught up, you know how we sometimes get caught up in stuff and we say, man, that's a good thing to be caught up in. Other times you get caught up in stuff and you say, shouldn't have been caught up in that. But if you get caught up in the goodness of God and you think about the greatness of God and all of his majesty and beauty and how appreciative you are for all of his blessings and that's become, you can become consumed in that, you're going to be a person that has heartfelt gratitude, thanksgiving and praise and it's just going to shine from you like we were talking about and singing about this morning. That kind of trust. It's our choice. You know how you cope. When the going gets tough, those who live with you, those who know you, how do they see you behave? My wife said to me a couple weeks ago, she just says, Randy, I just want to see you learn how to cope better with life. She's got a lot of knowledge. Been a Christian since 1977. But when some of these things happen, she goes, I just want you to remember to expect there are always going to be things that are going to happen in life that's going to be not what you wish. Just remember that. And I said, you know, duh, I was thinking to myself. But she's right. How do we cope? Offered God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. One of the wonderful things about being a believer is, is we have this great privilege to be able to sing. To be able to sing songs of praise. Wonderful hymns. Wonderful choruses that bring out this truth. You know, that's something that's kind of unique as Christians that we sing so much. We have a lot to sing about. Think about all the, the hundreds of thousands of hymns and all the languages of the world that have been written about the Lord Jesus Christ. About our salvation about our relationship with him, about Christian life. There's a famous British preacher of the late 19th and early 20th century, so it's going quite a ways back. He didn't know anything about our current worship in 2006. Some would say, and I've been doing quite a bit of reading on this because this is a subject that interests me for it's one of our ministries back at our home church, the area of music and worship and praise, But some would say that it's marked by dull liturgy on the one hand or fluffy choruses on the other. And that's what he was saying back in the 18th, early or the late 19th, early 20th century. He said this, we leave our places of worship and no deep and inexpressible wonder rests on our faces. We can sing these lifting melodies 
And when we get back out on the streets, our faces are one with the faces of those who have left the theaters and music halls. There is nothing to suggest that we have been looking at anything stupendous and overwhelming. Now, I said I want to figure out what exactly does that word stupendous mean. So it means astonishing, outstanding, amazing, awesome, breathtaking, fantastic. He said there's nothing to suggest that we've been looking at anything stupendous and overwhelming. Shouldn't be like that when we're singing with a spirit of thankfulness. In a sense, we leave here really on a high. We leave this place where we've been together because we've been in the presence of God. And we've been thinking about Him. We've been worshiping Him. And we should be different. There's a song we sing back at Fairhaven. How great is your goodness stored up for those who fear you. No end to the kindness that comes from you each day. We count on compassion in the shelter of your presence. Hidden away, hidden from harm. How great your love. No end to your kindness. That's a wonderful quality about God. There is no end to his kindness. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I suggest that's one thing God wants us to do this new year. Secondly, he says, and pay your vows to the Most High. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. A vow is something you decide to give. It's a promise you make. It's not something that's forced upon you. It's voluntary. For those of you who are married or have been to a wedding ceremony, there's always a portion in this service, in the ceremony, for the vows. The exchanging of the vows. It would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? If for some reason, for, in some situation, that those vows were being forced upon the person saying it. It's inconceivable. It's something that you voluntarily say to your husband or to your wife. And you say, I promise. And obviously we understand as Christians that in the power of the Spirit, we are making these promises that we will love you. I will love you till death do us part. In the good times and in the bad times. And we make maybe that's one that's a traditional vow or it's one that you've made yourself. The person on the receiving end wants to believe that you mean it. When you became a Christian, for some that's many years ago, and for some of you that's relatively recent, what were your vows that you promised to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember? Do you remember what you said to him? When you understood that the cross was the only way that you could be saved, that his blood shed for you was the only way that you could have a relationship with him. And in effect, you said, Lord Jesus Christ, in effect, you said with these words, Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to come into my life. I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn. And I want to be forgiven of past, present, and future sin. And what did you say after that, in effect? Did you say, 
that I have a vow that I want to worship you only? Did you make a vow that said, I want to devote my life to you only? Did you make a vow that said, I want to serve and serve you only? What did you say? It's interesting that in the last book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, four chapters, it's very interesting reader, reading about people whose hearts had gone far from God. They, in effect, said it's a vain thing to serve God. Now, I don't know if they said this very quietly or in what way they uttered this, but in chapter 3, Malachi says, you know what you've said? And they said, what have we said? And he said, you said it's a waste of time to serve God. It's a vain thing. And he begins to point out and he shows them how they had said that. And he gets them and he corners them and he catches them and they're guilty. Living in our materialistic culture in 2006, we're often being confronted, aren't we, with the apparent, and I stress apparent, happiness and comfort of those who don't know Christ. And that can sometimes, in our quiet moments, if we're honest, sometimes that's a temptation to us. It was a temptation to a fellow named Asaph in Psalm 73. He said, basically, I've envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He, he said, from my perspective, they have no struggles. And they're free from the burdens of common man. Some would say, oh, to have an easy life. The Christian life is so hard sometimes. And in Malachi, they were basically saying, it is futile to serve God. We need to remember, we need to stop. If our mind starts to think that and say, you know, I've just been serving you, Lord. I've been serving you, Lord. I've been serving you, Lord. And and I'm tired There's some things we need to remember when we start thinking that way. We need to remember that we need to see the present in light of the future judgment of God. That's what he saw. Asaph saw this in Psalm 73, wonderful psalm. After he started thinking this way, he gets a correction in his mind, in his heart, and he realizes that the destruction that's coming to the one that doesn't know God. It's kind of like a parking ticket. You don't have to pay when you get that ticket. As soon as you get pulled over, the officer doesn't say, you now owe $400 for running that red light. You've got to pay it in a course of time, but you have to pay it. And if you don't pay it, then you'll get a warrant. There's a judgment. There's a cost. And Asaph remembers that. And that's why you can also understand that in the New Testament correlation with the Apostle Paul, Remember that verse in Corinthians where he said, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then we're to be pitied. We're to be pitied more than all men. If we spend all of our lives and it turns out, and thank God he is risen, but if it's turned out that he's a dead savior, and you've come every Sunday morning here, and you've come to your Monday meetings, you've come to your Wednesday meetings, and you've spent time on your knees praying for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, and you've lived your life because you've wanted to please Him, because you believe you have a living God, and yet, it, God forbid, let's say it wasn't true, He says you're to be pitied. For 
Paul, remember this now, faith in Christ was never contemplated for him as a royal route to material prosperity, to health and to ease for the apostle. Christianity for the apostle Paul brought trouble, persecution, and hardship, along with the joy of knowing Christ. But it wasn't an easy life. This life is not all there is. Our world puts such an emphasis, doesn't it? Such an emphasis on materialism and on the present, even on the planning for the future in the context of your retirement on this earth. But there's no mention of heaven. There's no mention of the place that the scripture says in Philippians that as a believer, your citizenship is in heaven. You're just a stranger. You and I are just strangers here on this earth right now. This is just a temporary place. We say to ourselves, where did 2005 go? And probably, Lord willing, if we're still here and he hasn't come back 10 years from now, we'll be saying, where did the last 10 years go? And we'll be that much closer. There's people probably in this room today who 10 years from now, if the Lord has not returned, will be in his presence. You're thinking, who, me? Who, me? Are you ready? Are you excited? This life is not all. There is a world to come beyond here. There is a judgment. There is an eternal heaven. There is an eternal hell. And as I said, Asaph remembered the big picture, and Paul did too. And that's why you could say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us from Romans chapter 8. Do you have that view today? Whatever you're going through, it doesn't compare to what's coming because we have a risen God, risen Savior. What a hope we have. Pay your vows to the Most High. You know, renew those vows. If you mean it, if you haven't done it, Renew them. Tell them afresh. Thirdly, lastly, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. One thing that certainly seems to be missing more and more in our culture is intimacy. It's harder and harder to talk to a live person on the phone before going through about 20 different buttons, push this, push that, push this. Emails to one another when you could speak to the person 10 feet from you, you get an email from them instead. (laughs) Intimate communication. We have a God who still loves intimate communication. God is a God who longs for intimacy with us. You and I don't really understand this because, frankly, sometimes when people just keep going on and on with us, especially if they're telling us their problems and their troubles, at a certain point we can't take anymore, usually. We just kind of have to say, okay, that's enough, you know. And sometimes we kind of just have to walk away. It's a very special person that has a heart of compassion that can listen and take in and really listen. God is our God, and he says, call on me in the day 
of trouble. He loves to answer our prayers. He loves to work in whatever way he chooses to work in those situations. We've been hearing about that today, how he's working in our sister's life. And he gives us this wonderful invitation. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Don't fret. Don't run necessarily first and foremost to your friends. Do that maybe second and third. But first, call upon me. Pour it out. Cast your burdens on me. I want to tell you something. The day of trouble will come to all of God's children. Experience teaches this to be the case, doesn't it? As long as we're on this side of heaven, there will be trials. All may be going wonderfully well today, but the picture can change tomorrow. Some of us from our church went to the area around New Orleans, Seidel, after Hurricane Katrina hit. And it really is a fascinating thing to be among God's people. They were helping an assembly that had lost their structure. Most of the believers had lost their homes. And it really was amazing as they came back and they told of the joy of these believers. Their appreciativeness of their help, of coming. For all the ways that they'd seen God's people help. But they didn't find people that were in despair. They didn't find people that were utterly discouraged. They found people, obviously, that had been heartbroken. But they still had joy. They were glad to be alive. They were glad for the way that God was showing his provision. How things can change. I often think, here in California, if God should so allow the Hayward Fault to do its thing, that 8.0 that the Weather Channel is talking about and promoting their program right now, what if it could happen tomorrow, a new series starts, and they're predicting, suggesting, what would happen if that 8.0 hits San Francisco, hits along the Hayward Fault? I think of all the people who have taken such pride and such comfort in the fact that their house prices have tripled in value over the last seven or eight years. What would happen then? Where's our hope? Where's our joy? Where's our trust? As we were hearing about in our hymn today, trusting Jesus. That's the answer. That is all. The brother who wrote the song, It is well with my soul. One of the lines is, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, lest this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. God desires brothers and sisters who have thankful hearts, that are appreciative of all of his goodness this year. He desires us to be genuine and sincere as he judges, as he evaluates our lives, that we are in fact wanting to, in the power of the Spirit, fulfill our vows. And when we fail, to be honest and tell him and to renew ourselves to him and also to be in a relationship with him that's intimate, that isn't just going through the motions like the Israelites were guilty of, but is genuine and sincere to be able to be those ones that pour out our hearts to him, not only in times of trouble, but at all times. In concluding, I'd like to just think, it makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, 
Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Father, we pray that we will not grow weary and lose heart. We want to keep our eyes focused on you, drawing upon you for our strength in this new year. God, we want to be those that bring honor and glory to you by the way we live, by how we speak, and by all of our actions. Father, may we be a shining light to the nations. May you bless this church here, right here in San Ramon, as they want to serve you and they seek to. Father, I pray that you will help us to have our priorities in check. We know the enemy wants to get us off into this and get us off into that and get us distracted. We thank you for the privilege that we have as your people being able to serve you. And we pray that we'll do it with excellence and in the power of the Spirit. Bless us as we go today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.